This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is, you know, I've said a couple of times throughout the duration of this show that there are, I'm calling them the top five uh, Michael Mann heat experts in the entire world. I think at this point, I can call myself comfortably one of those, but one man that I've been desperate to get on the show for a long time, um, uh, and, and the universe is aligned, I've finally been able to sit him down for a cup of coffee, I would definitely say is one of those top five. I'm holding four separate articles of many more, probably, that he writes some of the best things, I think, that I've ever been written about the film. Um, And I'm just going to read you a couple of quotes right now from them, including my all-time favourite. Heat is still his fullest, broadest depiction of that vision. It's a sea of unquantifiable connections. My very, very favourite um, interview quote from Michael Mann was prompted by this man. He said, yeah. And then when Al goes to the hotel, what does he see? He sees a girl alone in a car. And if he and De Niro hadn't had that coffee shop scene, he hadn't stopped to say, I want to know more about you and had that face to face, he wouldn't have known about that girl in the car. And it may not be her. She may be somebody else. But the way she's sitting there alone in the car, it just clicks. He learned that in that coffee shop scene. And finally, In most films, such connections find grace notes to the main story. Increasingly in man's films, the mundane, genre-friendly details of plot, however well-researched they may be, have taken the backseat to a network of glances, embraces, murmuring cityscapes and moody longueurs and the director's stylistic hallmarks. Man has always been the kind of director who can shoot a city street and fill it with ineffable longing. Wowza. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct pleasure to have one of the best film critics in the world, Bill Gitterberry, welcome to One Heat Minute. Hello. That's a very <laughs> flattering introduction. <laughs> welcome to the 92nd minute of heat big on one. this project. A big one. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. People would have seen a gap in the posting. It's just because we've been the stars have been aligning to get Bill Gitter on the show. So thank you so much for being a part of it. And thanks to Niall Schwartz, who I believe is your buddy, who probably gave the, yes, this is okay to do. This podcast isn't just a madman murmuring to himself. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Thank you. For, it's, I think it's an absolutely heroic thing you're doing, this podcast. <laughs> That's the first time I've said that, and I'm going to take that quote, and that will be on the website by this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, um, by this man. Look, thank you. Look, you've, you've got an affinity for man's films. I know you particularly recently love uh, you know, Miami Vice. You've um, chronicled it deeply, especially in the last couple of years, which has been awesome as the heat restorations have been coming around. And I think what we briefly just touched on at the beginning of the podcast, just before we recorded, was you're one of the first people who really started to find that deep affinity um, for the quieter moments, you know, digging into characters like Donald Breeden and finding that they're the tenderest, that's the soul of this movie. What is it? And, and even in preparation for tonight, you said 
um, you said that you were going to watch this minute just to refresh yourself. You end up watching the whole film. What is the addictive quality of this movie? And it's just, you know, inimitable rewatchability. What is that about for you? I mean, I think over the years it's been different things um, because it's one of those movies that kind of grows up with you. Yes. I mean, I saw it, you know, in 1995. I mean, I, I wrote about this at some point, um, but I saw it, you know, opening night. And, um, you know, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot then. Uh, and I liked Michael Mann at the time. But I had, like, reservations about certain elements of it. You know, like, I remember watching it and thinking, expecting, like, this, like, kick-ass crime drama. And the thing that everybody was expecting, right? Kick-ass crime drama by the guy who did Miami Vice and Last of the Mohicans. And he's got, you know, Pacino and De Niro. And that's that's the thing. That's what you're going to watch. And, yes. you know, the trailers had the Moby music and everything. Um, and now to be fair, we did get that. Like he did deliver <laughs> on that Thomas, but he delivered all this other stuff that at the time I remember, I mean, I guess I would have been 21, 22 then. Um, at the time I remember thinking, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I, I'm willing to follow him down all these kind of weird Dickensian pathways and, you know, all these like secondary and tertiary characters that for some reason are get, being given inner lives. What's that about? <laughs> um, and uh, and then, you know, over the years, um, I have discovered that, I mean, as much as I love all the stuff in Heat that I loved, you know, at the beginning, it's those other details that really kind of come through. Like we were talking about the, 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 the Braden scene. Um, you know, you're proud of me. What you proud of me for, Lily? I mean, that scene just absolutely wrecks me. Yes. And that was... You know, if you had told if you had told me if you had asked me in you know in 1995 how I would have improved Heat, probably my first thing I would have said was cut that scene out. Yes. Um, and like now, if you know, I feel like like literally that would be the last scene I would let go. If you were like taking Heat away from me scene by scene, that would be the last one I'd be hanging on to. Um, so uh, it's you know it, like I said, it's it's a film that grows with you. And there are only very small handful of films that can do that, you know, and those are the really special ones that, that like they seem to be alive, you know, they just they grow up with you and you grow up with them. Well, we're going to check out the 90-second minute. That's the perfect entry point. So we're in the 90-second minute. If you aren't sure where that is from exactly where we are, we're in the what is probably the, the third slash fourth, depending if you count the encounter just outside the coffee shop um, uh, of this conversation. And it's, uh, it, it sort of really dives into Neil's discipline and Hannah's discipline. It has some wonderful, some of the most wonderful gestures and what I call like a punctuation gesture in Al Pacino. So have a listen. Bilger and I are going to watch it together. You guys are going to listen to it and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. It's an interesting point. What are you, a monk? I have a woman. What do you tell her? I tell her I'm a salesman. So then if you spot me coming around that corner, you're just gonna walk out on this woman? Not say goodbye? That's the discipline. That's pretty vacant. Yeah, it is what it is. It's that or we both better go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. I don't much want to either. <laughs> 
Neither do I. You know, I have this. Uh... That is uh, what you call the the torture of this show. <laughs> so keep playing. Uh, that is the that is the torture and the the awesomeness of uh, this project, Bilga. How good torture, I, torture and also reprieve because because <laughs> I, I, that's the one thing I don't want to talk about is the dream sequence because I have no idea what it means. <laughs> no, and 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 it's the pro and it's it emerged out of um, just so we can throw it away. It emerged out of them ad living, like finding mm-hmm. it was them. You know, the, these guys being so attuned to their characters that they dialed into this is what I believe the motivations of, of essentially the entire film are you know, being translated through these guys. I'm just bringing up the script on another um, thing here. But I, 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 one thing I notice, and I'm sorry to jump to the middle of the minute, but I love that when, when Hannah says, that's pretty vacant, no? And Neil says, it is what it is. It's either that or we better go do something else. There's this, He's he leans in and you don't notice the lean, but he's waiting on he's hanging on every word there. And I think it, you nailed it and, and Michael Mann nailed it in that interview, which is that he's like, that's where he's hanging on every word. It's like Neil was, is gonna leave this girl. He's gonna leave this person right there and then, and I wanna hang on every word. I wanna see how whether he really drinks the Kool-Aid in this moment and then he's right nice and intimate really close this is the moment I need to pay the most attention to everything that's happening on the screen such a great moment yeah and that's um and that's really the thing that um man is so good at in this film particularly but he's I think he's always been good at especially in kind of his genre films this idea of um you know kind of these intuitive connections that people make with each other that allows them later to take action or not take action depending on, you know, kind of what's happening. Um, and that was, you know, that was interesting when, when, when man said that to me in our interview, um, you know, it was actually kind of a revelation for me because I hadn't quite thought of it, thought of that particular moment in that way, in that, that was that this predictive moment for what happens later outside the hotel. Um, when Pacino does in fact see Edie sitting in a car. Um, and because, you know, back in the day, back in the day when I thought Heat was a less than perfect movie, <laughs> I would have, you know, I, I would have pinpointed that as a potential goof because I would have said, wait, why this, why is he looking at her? He's never met her. Like he wouldn't know her. That's a goof, Michael, man, you messed up. And in fact, no, actually that's the heart of the movie. Like these, these people have kind of internalized each other and he knows exactly, like, not, he doesn't know exactly, but at that point, he's like, something's going on there. And it's the scene is absolutely cut in a way that makes it clear. It's just, you know, I didn't notice it. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great little moment between them. And, and it's great because all De Niro really says is, I have a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a woman. And it's just, That's yeah, it. Exactly. I, I have a woman. It yeah, like, and it's like, it, that's the, you know, uh, Manola Dargis, when you had her, was saying this is kind of like the beginning of the end. Yes. Uh, and that's like, that's really kind of the beginning of He's like, I have a woman. And like something deep within the recesses of Hannah's mind is like, click, you know. Thank you very much. That's that moment. That's, 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 that's all she wrote. And what's funny yeah. is that 
I love the look on his face too when he's talking about, I tell her I'm a salesman. It's almost a sh- like I've really, I've tried to pinpoint what it is because it almost seems like he, he doesn't take it flippantly that he has to live this life where he just tells her the wrong thing. But it's almost like he's just sort of smiling. It's like it's kind of embarrassing. But I tell her I'm a, like I tell her I'm a salesman. Like it's almost the it's almost a moment where Neil breaks for like a split yeah. second to smile because he's like I tell her I'm a salesman. Like what more generic a job could you have? <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a road salesman in metals, not not yeah, an, I, an, an arch criminal. You know, an arch nemesis of a of, of this archetypal cop hero. Yeah, and it's it, it's a it's a it's slightly heartbreaking too. You're right because. Um, you know, we've seen by this point already the scene where um, he calls Edie when you know they're all out with their with their wives, or they're all out. You know, he's out with their wives, um, and <laughs> he you know he feels the need to call her um, because at that point we've already you know we've already been told the the Jimmy McElwain quote from an earlier scene with with Val Kilmer, I guess, um, and. You know, Neil's, you know, that's the discipline. Neil's discipline is that he does not let that stuff get in the way. And we've already started to see that, like, she's kind of getting into his head. Um, And, you know, he says, I tell her I'm a salesman. It's like two guys kind of confiding about their lives. And, you know, like... it, it is it is a touching weird little moment like there's this there's some kind of intimacy in the fact that he's telling Pacino this yes and he's like you know? this weird, it almost feels and it's casual too it's like someone you work with you know it's it's like you're mm-hmm. just at the water cooler I tell her I'm a salesman like that's yeah. that's how that's how casual the, I tell her I'm, I tell her I'm a salesman and so he, he starts to expand on that and Vincent straight away being like the emotional person that he is he's like yeah, that's pretty vague. Like he, he feels very. I think Pacino's delivery is so spot on there because the, um, it feels very genuine. It's like that's pretty vacant. Like if this is a person that you actually care about, that's pretty vacant. No, it's like yeah. it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it. these these two guys. I mean, they they understand each other, and um, I mean, you know, we will get to this later in the in the minute, but. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be doing anything else. Neither do I. I mean, it really is. That's the kind of revelation where, in some ways, you understand at that moment that there is no place these two would rather be right now yes. than like sitting in a coffee shop talking with each other. Like, <laughs> you know, as reluctant as De Niro was, and that little smile he gives. Oh, right they both—they both give each other a smile in that moment. It's—it's it's perfect. It's. I'm going to find yeah. the exact second of that so we can we can uh, flag people. It's just. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Yeah, sorry, you were saying? No, I was going to say, I mean, you could kind of tell, I mean, De Niro smiles so little in this movie, but you could probably kind of tell the story of this movie through his smiles, <laughs> yes. right? Like, because, because there's that other smile that he gives, you know, like right as he's about to go after Wayne, like he, right when he sort of pulls the car and he's about to, I mean, that's like, you know, where he's like at that point, he's totally broken from the discipline, right? Because he's like waited for Edie. He's got her. He's like going to take her there in the car. He's like going out. It's like it's all <laughs> falling apart for him. But there's that little smile. It's just like the he allows himself just that little pleasure of fuck it. I'm going to get this guy. And it's <laughs> you know? ma- and you're right. It's mad pleasure. It's mad yeah. pleasure when he turns the car. It's like this uh, 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 frantic and then shoo, turns the car. Yeah. Great. It's 52 yeah. seconds into this minute that Pacino gives that lovely little smile and 
and De Niro's like he's got his eyebrows raised, he's looking at him, and he's giving him as much of a smile as it can be. That's heat. That's a. I think we need like a little comic, like you yeah. just to write heat in five frames of uh, De Niro <laughs> actually smiling in this movie. It's just the entire. That's what it is. But, There's my oh. cat. Can you hear her? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we thought that the podcast might get interrupted by Bilga's cat, who uh, um, is 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 a little bit older, I'm guessing, and she's going a little deaf. She, she's about ten, actually. She's not, you know, she's old, but not that old. But she's she's deaf, and she's she does not know how loud she is. And, uh, <laughs> she's a little nuts. That's... It's all right. She'll she'll quiet down in a little bit. No, that's okay. She, she I might actually make an on camera appearance. At, you know. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> we're we're not recording the video, so that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Um, the so. Back in 1995, like interested in your perspective because you were there on the day, was there a sense that, well, can you describe it? Did you see it in New York City? Where were you at that time? Were you in New York? I was in New York. I had just moved to New York. Yeah. So was there a sense that, and I had a great chat with uh, another, you know, uh, um, East Coast critic, Sean Burns, who's a huge fan of um, uh, Michael Mann as well. And Sean talked about this weird incongruous thing that all the folks are in New York are looking at these two guys who are like so synonymous with New York, like in an LA crime movie, they just felt like they'd been taken away from them. Was that something that you felt like as well, uh, you know, there, or was there more than just the general anticipation of these two guys facing off on screen against one another? Um, I didn't, you know, because I had just moved to New York, I hadn't, you know, internalized the whole New York thing as much. I mean, I was kind of an outsider too. You know, the other thing to remember, um, even though, and as I said, it was, you know, Pacino and De Niro were really kind of top build and, you know, it was very much built up as, you know, Val Kilmer was a pretty big star then too. And I remember Val Kilmer was all over the ads. So like, you know, Val Kilmer was kind of very much a part of this whole thing. Um, which was also interesting because he, you know, I mean, he's obviously got a huge part in the film, but, but, you know, it's like, it's almost like if you tried to see it as a movie about three people, you'd be sort of misled in another whole other direction. Um, it's, it's either two or 70, like the third, exactly. it's, it's, like exactly. a, it's not a film about two people or it's a film about 70. It can't just be a third because then the next character that you elevate, it's like, oh, well, he's got just as much time almost as Don Breeden. Like the yeah. random guy who drives the car, you know. So yeah, yeah. some some good stuff there. But yeah, no, you're, yeah. Ma- massive star Warner Brothers. You know, he just came out of Batman Returns, um, and I think it was um, Dove Honig who who edited um, Batman Returns, and then had come over. Oh, sorry, not Batman Returns. Batman Forever, rather. Excuse me. Um, but yeah, Batman Forever, and then there was a lot of the same same crew came over and Val Kilmer famously said the most fun he had working on Batman forever was preparing for heat. So that was, yeah. <laughs> that was his little uh, dig, I think at uh, Schumacher. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's uh yeah, it's a great Val Kilmer performance and oh. um, it, it's interesting because, you know, he was seen so much as kind of a pretty boy, um, not quite, you know, kind of pretty boy movie star type, but then, um, you know, his performance also is one of those things that as you watch Heat, you just discover more and more and more more and more layers to his performance and to his storyline. So And he gets yeah. away. I don't I just don't think enough people he gets away. Re- I just don't think enough you, people register that he gets away. You could do a sequel. With I know. Pacino going after Val Kilmer. <laughs> 
I, I think Chris, another filmmaker that you've made, and I've, I've floated this theory a couple of times on the show, um, you know, periodically, but a filmmaker that you've written about quite extensively as well, Mr. Chris Nolan. I think he he tried to do the heat sequel with Insomnia, but Nolan such got such a uh, a bleak view of humanity that he made Vincent Hanna completely amoral. Like he's just like willing to like he's he's a broken dude with this you know picture of morality, and now he just broke. Like that's the that's the Chris Nolan view of uh, existence as you get older yeah. and more cynical. Yeah, and he's uh, I mean, it is interesting to see how many little things in Heat kind of pop up in Christopher Nolan movies later on. I'd never kind of realized um, that, like, you know, William Fichtner in uh, Dark, <laughs> The Dark Knight is basically playing Van Zandt again. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's basically a, a, a mob banker. Mob banker, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so all those little all those little elements. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Nolan is, Nolan is one of those guys who um, is, is fascinating because he uh he take you know he's a real cinephile he takes all these film filmmakers and and he's clearly been influenced by their work i mean he's a huge terrence malick fan he's a huge stanley kubrick fan huge you know michael nan fan i mean no wonder i like the guy's movies so much it's like all my favorite directors <laughs> yes but you know he, he turns them into like his own little things and um so it's fun to kind of it's fun to find the little you know connections and the little references and even sort of like you say with with insomnia, some of the like similar tonalities and things like that. But but then also I think, um, you know, we run the risk sometimes of making Christopher Nolan seem derivative. No, uh, I remember people used to do that with Paul Thomas Anderson too. Like people would say, "Oh, Paul Thomas Anderson, he has a tracking shot, you know, long tracking shot in Boogie Nights that's like Goodfellas." And then somebody somewhere would say, "Yeah, he's just imitating Scorsese," and I was like. He's not imitating Scorsese. Scorsese would never have made a movie like Boogie Nights, you know. And you know. and um, and people accuse Michael Mann of being derivative of Michael Mann. Like even some yeah, filmmakers, okay. they talk about thematically derivative, and it's like, well, you know, for for fans of the work, it's like what he's proving to you is that he's sticking with similar themes, but they can just. They, they just seem to unfurl depending on setting and de- depending on sort of intent. They can sort of unfurl and unfurl and unfurl and unfurl. And so many people are like, oh, Public Enemies, it's just heat, you know, with John Dillinger. And you're like, no, it is absolute. Like, you might pick up a few little bits and bobs in there, but it is absolutely a completely different intent. It's 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 got much more in common with Black Hat than probably anything else. And then, like, the inside has probably got more in common with Ali. Um, and yeah. it's like you might – the although the themes can sort of evolve, like, yeah, I, I find much more sort of strange connections and other things. And also, Quentin Tarantino, you know, he's the most famous cinephile and person who, you know, liberally he goes, you steal from the best, you know, that's exactly what you do. And so that it, I think it's also just mood. People, if they want to, you know, have a dig at someone, they're like, oh, they stole that. And then if you're, if you're as brash as Tarantino, you're like, yeah, hell yeah, I stole it. It was awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you know, some of the greatest, I mean, look, no one was the, a bigger thief than Shakespeare, right? I mean, yes. you know, the, the guy took all the plots from, you know, like they were all existing plays in some cases. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I used to have a, um, you know, a professor who I who I loved greatly, but you know, he would always kind of rag on Tarantino, saying, you know, Pulp Fiction, he's just, you know, he's just stealing from Deliverance, and I was like. No, he's not. He's not right. stealing from Deliverance. Right. You know, basically, that is you know, a random pull. I was, you know, sometimes when someone's like, he's just stealing from, I reckon 25 movies went through my head with Pulp Fiction, and then you went Deliverance. I'm like, no. 
No, he's yeah, not. and then uh, and then the people, you know, then the whole thing about you know how he was stealing Reservoir Dogs from uh, City on Fire. Yeah, which like you know there's a couple of sequences that are that are similar, like you know they're, they're edited similarly. But no, he's not stealing from that. I mean, he's obviously. You know, he's 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 being inspired and he's taking elements from these things, which is something we all do. Just very few artists are actually willing to acknowledge it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And man actually is one of those people who I think is a cinephile. He watches a lot of films. He doesn't like to talk about them that much. You know, no. he doesn't like to talk about his influences. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Whenever I try to get those kinds of details out of him about, you know, the films that he you know, watches and enjoys. Very often it's like either like real like classics like, you know, German expressionism, silent films, things like that. Or it's like something really recent, like The Revenant, you know, yeah. or Birdman. And in, um, in your great interview with him for Bam, you that's exactly what was funny. He's like, Oh, I'm friends with Alejandro and obviously um uh he he'd worked with the same cinematographer, Chivo and uh um Lubitsky. and so they're there and he's like, Oh yeah, I watched a rough cut like that. And it's like Yeah that movie like no offense like it's a great film but it's at the same time it's like we want you to tell us everything that you love we want us to we want we want to know the movies you obsess over but you know like you said he's man's a kubrick guy like nolan's a kubrick guy that's probably why when when michael mann popped up in the dark knight trilogy documentary and he was talking about all the things he liked about the dark knight i think lots of man crazy nuts like myself and yourself probably went oh my god he's seen these movies he even watched them like he watches a superhero movie i can't even envisage what michael mann must be like watching watching that he should um you know he uh was at the screening of uh, black hat at bam i don't know if you a couple of people mentioned this at the time, but, um, you know, he actually sat down in the audience and watched it with us because it was the director's cut and the first time that it had been seen, you know, on a screen. And um, a friend of mine who sat right behind him said that Michael Mann just cackled all through the movie. Like, he just laughed at every line. He just, he was just having, like, a blast watching Black Hat. So, so there you go. Like, I mean, he's apparently kind of a very local movie watcher. <laughs> Now tell me about. Sorry to take briefly off of heat, but knowing that Michael Mann fans are obviously listening to the show, the Black Hat director's cut has not come to Australia. I don't even know if it's available these days to actually purchase. Can you buy Black Hat the cut that you've seen? You can't. Now has the actual because I remember one of the big things at the time that like Black Hat the theatrical release came out was that it you know. They, they scrapped the Australian opening. They did. did the actual movie, original movie, actually make it to Australia eventually? It, it, or? It, it did. It went straight to like home video. It didn't go to cinemas. Yeah. And what was crazy, you know, for folks like myself who were pursuing, you know, uh, media contacts is like Chris Chris Hemsworth, like one of the biggest movie stars in the world, and you're not going to bring out a Chris Hemsworth movie even for a weekend, like or two weeks or something. Like he could come down and promote it, and people would go and see it in droves and you know talk about working with michael mann like what the the, the storylines right themselves it just seems like such a nutty thing anyway that, that seems absurd uh, you know i wonder if there was a more of a story there because yeah i mean it did the australian release was scrapped and then i don't think it opened in china either which like you'd think those would be the two countries that it, it would open it, it would be 500 million it would be a 500 million dollar movie in china <laughs> like well, i mean it, it's yeah. nuts um, it's it's very strange and um yeah i don't i mean this is a tangent yeah the thing that man said at the time or two things one it was actually at the screening um uh, uh either at the screening or the q a you know for for uh 
Black Hat, he said, you know, I'm still working on it. Like, so it was a kind of a director's cut, but I get the sense that maybe he kind of wanted to keep keep fiddling with it. Um, you know, it did show on cable here. Um, so there is some kind of extant, you know, version of it that somebody could potentially license. So it's like something exists. Yes. Um, but the other thing I was going to say was, you know, when I actually asked, this was actually backstage at the Q&A uh, before we went on or after I can't remember when but um, I asked uh, man about what I actually asked him about was the Black Hat soundtrack yes um, but the thing he said was and he said this kind of applied to the whole movie was he doesn't have the rights to it you know like it's you know I mean he wasn't a director for hire but the film is owned by legendary pictures like they financed it and he does not even though I assume he had final cut because I think he always has final cut um like the rights to the movie and what happens with it are not his. Yes. Um, and so it's kind of out of his hands. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the, through the, the reasons why he was able to show it at BAM um, back then probably have to do with the fact that they were doing a retrospective and things like that. So, you know, may, maybe the, the solution is for someone to do a retrospective over there and, you know, <laughs> I'm taking notes, and uh, I think I, I can say this soon. It hasn't been complete lockdown, but the uh, the the head programmer of the Sydney Film Festival, Nishan Moodley, is going to be on the show. So, look, Nishan, I'm just going to call you out right now on uh, Bill Gabriel's appearance yeah. on One Minute. There's, the retrospective is just begging to be done for Michael Mann, and you know maybe even Michael along to a Sydney Film Festival. Why not? Why not? I'm going to throw it out right here. Um, the when do you think, and this is, you know, I was, I like you, um, uh, I'm a couple of years younger than you, so when I saw Heat, it was a very, it was a, uh, I never got to see it on the theatrically when I was a young kid, I was about 15 um, at the time that it came out, or um, around that age, um, and the, I saw the film, and it was the big bombastic action movie elements that we talked about and it's definitely that movie that grew with me but i think it would have been you know it would have only been sort of the early 2000s where i was like this is a masterpiece just kept you know can, can see, for, for myself at the time i was like this is a masterpiece this is amazing this is a movie that i can continually revisit anyone who hasn't seen it, it's the first movie that i talk about if you know what's a movie that i need to see have you seen heat no okay we'll see that that's that's essential um and i've always been a, a, a bit of a michael mann obsessive but when do you think it started to turn when do you think it sort of crystallized because i feel like there was a moment where if you said michael mann was your favorite filmmaker a lot of people would go what michael mann the guy who did Manhunter, like that guy, um, and and then the, now there's a moment where like, oh yeah, of course, like yeah, you know, thief, yeah, you know, like I think there was like a moment, and I don't, I don't think it was you know just when Criterion brought out Thief, but I think it's like, uh, when did you sort of feel it sort of changing, the winds changing for Michael Mann to sort of be recognised as the auteur that kind of we're both um, very much in the camp of. That's an interesting. That's a really interesting question. And I've and I've wondered about it occasionally because you know for me it actually happened a little, um, you know, I mean I I I in fact I just talked about this on another podcast but I'll talk about it here as well you know for me like I said you know I, I loved Heat a lot of Michael Mann films were like that where they were like okay this is great but there are like a couple of Michael Mannisms that are like a little too much. <laughs> you know, who the hell does this guy think he is? Like, yes, he made a very good movie. Thank you, Michael Mann. But like, enough with the, 
you know, the, you know, techno operatic music as like, you know, little girls look at the camera. I mean, um, and uh, for me, it actually, you know, the, the, the switch over from this guy's really good to, oh, fuck, this guy like is one of the greats. Ironically enough, it was when I saw Miami Vice, the film. Yes. Um, which is ironically ironic because for a lot of people that was the moment they turned against my friend. Um, it was like when I saw Miami Vice, which seemed to be a movie that was actually built largely out of Michael Mannisms. Yes. Um, like largely out of those things that we were kind we might have been annoyed with in the, the these sort of bigger films. And there, like the the plot, even though the plot was certainly important, it kind of took a backseat, much more so. Like where you know like the the you know the 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 gong lee storyline just kind of took over the movie in a way that no crime thriller is ever allowed to let like a romance take over um all these different elements um and uh and it was actually as i watched that film and as i, I was completely blown away by it and afterwards i was like Oh my God! I have to go back and rewatch every Michael Mann movie because I suddenly realize what's going on, and you know, like suddenly the whole thing like makes sense. And of course, it was after that that I rewatched everything. I was like, all right, well, masterpiece, masterpiece, masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but I mean, the Heat's greatness had obviously made itself clear by that point. You know, it, it's. I think it's all a, a series of things. I mean, I think the insider coming out and becoming this acclaimed film, like the, the, the you wrote a, one. You wrote a beautiful mm -hmm. note on the insider in one of the pieces that I've got in front of me, which is about, you know, when you see a movie like the insider and you see other movies that have won massive awards, like best picture and things like that. That's one that the Academy wishes they had over again. You know, that they, oh, they, they wish they had a, a second crack at voting for that, much like a lot of people talk about with, like, the social network, and they go, I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> what were we doing that year, you know? Um, and uh, much respect to the filmmakers of Spotlight, um, but at the same time, I'm just like, if you wanted the, the best journalism movie that was up for a best picture in the, in the recent years, since All the President's Men, it's The Insider. Like, that's what it is. It's, and and yeah. it's immediacy and all those sorts of things that you talk about. I, I had the same experience yeah. with you, and it was weird in Australia because I remember going, I went and saw Miami Vice. I took my, my best mate at the time because I sort of, you know, by osmosis turned him into a Michael Mann obsessive. And we watched it and I walked out and I was like, that was incredible. And you know, we both were just right on that. And so many people were like, oh my God, how weird was Colin Farrell's moustache? And I'm like, if that's what you took away from that movie, I can't help you. I can't help you watch a movie if you're distracted by his haircut. I can't help you. Well, he's, you know, and, and it's, it's, he's clearly not meant to, you know, look, you know, with it and cool. I mean, his dad was a roadie for the Allman Brothers. I mean, you know, it's like there's so many little elements of his character that come out through that bizarre, um, you know, bizarre facial hair. Although, actually, he's probably like a much, it's probably a much more hip look today. Than, oh, yeah. You know, it's, ahead, it's, uh, a, it's ahead of its time. It's it is of ahead of its time. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, maybe if the, we do another podcast together, Bilga, we can record the video and you and I can just get some wigs and we'll just shave our existing beards into <laughs> Colin Farrell, big biker mustaches <laughs> and just do it as, do it as That's Sonny Crockett from Miami Vice, another episode. Um, no, but I was going to say back to the idea of when, uh, you know, heat became, you know, established as kind of a masterpiece. 
and and why you know when Michael Mann kind of became recognized as sort of you know a cut above the other auteurs, like I said, I think it was a series of things. I think I think the Insider came out. I mean, Ali was actually kind of a flop. Yes. Um, but you know, it was a flop that a lot of very smart people. I mean, at the time, I hated it. Um, but it was a flop <laughs> that a lot of very smart people recognized as you know a masterpiece or a near masterpiece or something that was just very very special and it became clear even then that you know he was after something much different um like it's one of those films that, you know there's that uh, there's that great pauline kale line about um about the bonfire of the vanities uh which is not a line i would actually apply to ali but but there's something in that sentiment that's that's true, which is, you know, she says, I mean, she did not like Bonfire of the Vanity. She said something like, it's a disaster, but it's the kind of disaster that only a great filmmaker could make. Yes. Um, and while I do not consider Ali a disaster anymore, I think Ali is a wonderful film. There is a certain element in Ali of this guy is operating at such a high level that it's almost too high for us. You yes. Know? yes. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I, I think definitely... Um, you know the the Criterion release of Thief was a big deal. Um, I think for a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, to take a look at that because just just for so many people, you know, Michael Mann's, you know, Michael Mann begins with Last of the Mohicans, um, yes. which is not true. Um, and I think also I, I do think that, you know, with a lot of these films, there's a generational thing that happens. You know, there. Those of us who were younger uh, when we saw Last of the Mohicans and Heat, you know, as we get older and we kind of begin to become the kind of people who write <laughs> articles about the stuff that people read and might be influenced by, you know, like our tastes start to kind of become a bit more prominent. I mean, it's like a, it's like, um, you know, the way Mrs. Doubtfire is now considered a classic. I mean, when I, I, I mean, I didn't see Mrs. Doubtfire when it came out, but I remember when it came out. You know, the people I knew, my age, hated it. They were like, this is terrible, terrible <laughs> comedy with Robin Williams dressing up as a woman. And it made a lot of money, but who cares? It's terrible. Um, and now, like, people love it because a whole generation of kids who were raised by this movie, you know, are older now and influential. And that's I think that's just the way influence and, you know, the canon works sometimes. Which is, <laughs> yeah. that, We're happy with that. We're at least happy that some good filmmakers can emerge out of that. I don't think Patch Adams is going to have the same fate as Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, it's not. It's not. definitely but you know not. What, Will? Um, oh, God, what movie was I thinking of just recently that will uh, have this kind of resurgence one day? Um, well, I mean, you see it with other movies like, uh, you know, like Hocus Pocus and yes. um, Practical Magic. And even Jurassic Park was obviously a hit and critics loved it at the time. But the idea that Jurassic Park is considered has to be considered one of Steven Spielberg's absolute greatest films. That was not in the cards in no. 1993. In 1993, it was very much, okay, he did it. He did it. He, he got one off on us again. He totally scared us. He made a lot of money. It's a good movie. Solid. You know, it's no list 10 other Spielberg <laughs> movies. And, of course, now it's like if you don't put it in the top five of your ranking, you'll get hate mail. You know? <laughs> oh, God. Um one thing, just getting back to the minute here, I wrote a little note. Uh, well, I wrote a piece on Man some time ago, um, um, that where I sort of tried to unpack these these two guys in the in the canon 
um, and, and using this sort of conversation as like the legend of how to under, uh, understand it, what it's like, there's these great performance style notes that happen in this moment. And it's, and I think the fundamental difference is uh, De Niro's belief in stillness Mm-hmm. With his with his character here, so he's got this belief as Macaulay that most of the time he doesn't have to be expressive. Most of the time, his his eyes are just telling a story, and he can let that go. And I just love the the complete and utter contrast in that with Pacino being so hyper aware of putting a gesture like that chin gesture. I'm sort of doing to Bilger of it as we're talking via video, but um, that chin gesture and the pause is just a thing of beauty that. You know, sometimes I wish I could do in real conversations. Like you wish you had the bluster and that sort of Vincent Hanna magic yourself in a conversation to have the balls to pause and just like punctuate it with a with a pause. I just yeah. love that style contrast in these guys who came up. And I think you were talking to man about uh, in one of the interviews. We're talking about what are the styles of these actors. And man was very quick to say, "Well, no, these guys aren't." from the same style they invented their own style and you're just watching yeah. their styles bash against one another even though they came from the same point they've originated from the same point they've they've turned into two completely different things yeah and it, i mean that you really see that in the, the the dialectic between the two of them throughout the film um and also you see it in the style of the film and the way it changes when it's with one and one or the other i mean yes you know um De Niro is very calm, very controlled, doesn't talk much, very efficient in all his movements um, and, and words. Uh, and Pacino, I mean, Hannah is, I mean, you know, I mean, he's become a meme, right? I mean, we, we, <laughs> I mean and I, you've obviously talked about this on other episodes, but, you know, she's got a great ass and all this stuff. All, all the great Pacinoisms from this movie are actually Vincent Hannah trying to get you know, trying to provoke something out of the people that he's... They're all interrogations of a sort, right? Yes. Um, but the other thing that Pacino does as an actor is when he goes so big, um, it allows him to do other things that are actually still fairly big, but given kind of the the, 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 the level that he set with, you know, his other sort of the, the breadth of what he's doing earlier... They don't. They, they register as subtle because that chin gesture you mentioned is not a subtle gesture. I mean, like you said, if if you did that in the middle of a conversation, the other person would be like, "What are you doing?" Like that's very <laughs> that's very strange behavior. But because we've already seen Hannah act like a fucking lunatic in so many scenes, here he can actually do something like that that's not subtle at all. But in, to our minds, that's like, oh, that's just you know, that's he, he dialed it down. Um, because again, he's trying to get a rise out of, or he's trying to provoke some kind of reaction out of, out of, um, you know, oh, out Neil. of Macaulay. And it's it's um, reined in so much though here. That's what's so great about it. Like yeah, that's what I've noticed. Exactly right. It's almost like a scale. It's like everyone else he's provoking, he can be big and blustery and yell. And Neil's like the Neil's way too wily for that. He's just like a different animal completely. So it's like if you do that, if you if you do the two and. Inti- uh, sort of that fast twitch craziness, it's just not going to fly. It's just like, no, 
that's not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if, if yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if, if in the middle of that scene, of the coffee shop scene, <laughs> you know, Pacino goes, give me all you got, like, Neil's going to shoot him. <laughs> Neil will 100% shoot, shoot him. There's no doubt. There's yeah. absolutely no doubt. There's, yeah. there, there's like a Han Solo Greedo moment waiting to happen if that ever happened. And Neil exactly. would have shot first. There's no doubt. Yeah. There's not going to be a revision. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so so he has to, you know, he has to, you know, do those gestures and kind of hit those highs based on who he's talking to and who he's trying to kind of provoke. Um, what I what I do think is interesting, though, and as I mentioned, you know, the the style of the film, you know, when it cuts to, you know, when it cuts to Hannah, not at home, but when he's doing his job, when he's when he's like on the street, you know, it's always lots of handheld, lots of like over the shoulder following him following him through these corridors, following him through like these little alleyways and into, you know, a lot of unbroken kind of handheld shots. Um, and he's like, and I think it's in lots of close-ups, moving close-ups, you know, very much kind of trying to convey the sense that he's like in this world and he has to be very aware of everything around him. He's like very much alive in that moment, you know, very like these kind of, uh, there's a real immediacy to the, to the, you know, to the style of the film in those moments. By contrast, Macaulay is always in like these very kind of composed, still, yes. you know, nothing is out of place. Nothing is can be out of place because there's nothing there. Like his apartment is just totally empty. You know, he's always like, you know, you always see him in these kind of big, empty fields, you know, wide shots. I mean, it's like something out of Miami Vice. You know, he's always very controlled he's always in control of his surroundings um and the, the frames are often very static or if they move you know it's it's a very kind of um very deliberate movement of the camera um but after like after this kind of fulcrum point of the caf- coffee shop conversation things start to change after that like yes. neil's life becomes a little wilder and things become a little more uncertain and you do start to get you know kind of like slightly more agitated close-ups of him um you know, so much so that by the end, um, you know, when he's going into, um, uh, you know, Trejo's apartment and into some of these other spaces, and then you do actually- Van Sant's house as well. There's that great sort of, yeah. he sort of emerges, like emerges yeah. out of the ground, out of the infinity pool. And you're like, oh, geez, he, like he's, yeah. he, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's not, it's not the Neil that we see pacing walking down it's like he's coming out of things and that's that i i think that's you know one of the most frantic moments in my mind is that lead up to where he tosses the chair through van zant's window and he's just stalking him outside in the darkness that's some creepy stuff not associated with the character at any other point really yeah and and i want to um i don't want to step on the toes of whoever does that moment but that van zant moment there is great because he's like you know where is wayne girl and the guy's like how the hell should i know (laughs) And there's no kind of like, okay, now I'm going to torture you and try to get it out of it. It's just like, bang, he's dead. Like, Neil is like, oh, yeah, of course he doesn't know. Like, fuck this guy. He's gone, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I just think that that's, like, like I said, every minute of this movie offers something. I think that's one of the brilliant things about this podcast that you're doing is that it's one of the few movies where there is something to talk about in every single minute of the film. Um, but back to to our minute, our minute. <laughs> um, but it, is, it it really is. I, I really do think that this is kind of the the the, the you know the, the the fulcrum on which you know the whole rest of the movie turns, and where there's almost this like transference between them. Yes, in a way. Um, 
because if you think about it, you know, I mean, Neil Neil's whole thing about you know anything you're willing to leave and you know not willing to leave in thirty seconds flat if you see the heat around the corner. I mean, the heat is literally sitting across a coffee shop table talking <laughs> to him, right? And he still goes through with the whole thing. And yes, he's got a lot of moves and he kind of disappears. But like, this is the point at which you leave. Like, this is the point at which you get on the plane and you're gone. Like, they're on to you. They're on to everybody of your crew. The heat is like, the heat just bought you a cup of coffee. It's time for you to abandon your hype plan. I love so much that you said that because it's so many moments that... You know, and that's what I love really about the, you know, it's another sort of ancillary character really, but John Voigt's character in this as Nate. Nate is already having the come to Jesus moment, right, you know, so to speak, with him in the car in this little confessional, this fraternal relationship. He's like, they know this guy's after you. Nate's already saying, you know, if you're you that I know, the heat's too much. Like, let's call it off. Let's go to the next job. And you're right. That is just the per- that's the perfect. The heat's not around the corner. The heat just bought you a cup of coffee. <laughs> they know about everything. Look, I can't think of a better way to end this episode. So that's where we're going to end, ladies and gentlemen. The, this has been uh, one heat minute. This has been minute ninety two. Um, we have an unbelievable starting, obviously with Manola Dargis um, at a minute eighty nine. We've got an amazing collection of people that I'm really excited to share with you. Bill Gabiri has been a person I wanted to get on this podcast. From day one, Bilger, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show, finally. Thank you so much for doing it. I really appreciate it. This has been an absolute ball. Um, loved loved talking. Lots of good revelations on here, especially that the heat is not around the corner. The heat is right down in front of you buying a cup of coffee. So with that sentiment, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to One Heat Minute. Subscribe, rate, review. We're all over the place. Um, Garth Franklin, thank you for our web design. Mr. Paul Davies, thank you for our awesome theme. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Bilger, for being a part of the show once again. And you'll catch us on another episode of One Heat Minute, not around the corner. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. You can have a listen. <laughs>